It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When he died in 1848, John Jacob Astor was America's richest man. But at the end of the 18th century, he was fresh off the boat from Germany with nothing but a cargo of musical instruments to sell. The young Johann quickly found that flutes wouldn't make his fortune, but furs might. And he had such success in the fur trade that he caught the attention of the president. Thomas Jefferson was looking for someone brave or foolish enough to try to build up a settlement on the Pacific coast to compete with the European empires trading tea, ginseng, opium and silver with China. And Astor was his man. Astor, he said, would one day be viewed alongside Columbus and Raleigh as the founder of such an empire which will arise from commerce. To secure its future, America has long looked west, beyond its shores, to Asia. And for American power to reach across the Pacific, Jefferson knew it would have to be built on trade. Two centuries later, the task of securing America's economic and military relationships with Asia is even more urgent and considerably more complicated. I'm John Prideau. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how much power should America wield in Asia? The Biden administration is busy laying out the blueprint for its strategy across the Pacific. The need to respond to China's growing power in the region is one of the only issues on which Republicans and Democrats can agree. But war in Europe is diverting attention. President Biden has already had to water down his economic plan. And China warns that any attempt to build an Asian NATO is doomed to fail. A decisive pivot to Asia has been promised for a decade. Can Joe Biden pull it off? With me to discuss what America is up to in Asia are Charlotte Howard and John Fassman. John, what's going on up the Hudson River? Nothing. It is good to be back. It's great to see you guys. It feels like coming home. I am glad, by the way, that you didn't ask what's going on upstate. I've taken some ribbing from people who live in my town who point out justifiably that you can't call yourself upstate if you can actually see Manhattan from the train station. Are you trying to get some kudos by pretending you live in real America? Yeah, I guess, I mean, is suburbia real America? It's, I'm trying to say upstate sounds kind of cool because it sounds removed. And in the city obviously sounds cool, but there's nothing cool about living in the suburbs. But I think I just have to embrace it. I had a very New York experience this morning, which was setting my calendar alert to sign my kids up for one of two available soccer fields in the entire city, because if you don't do it at 9.01, your child will have nowhere to play soccer. 
And I was reminded of the high degree of difficulty of trying to raise kids in this city, but the uh, trash-strewn streets make it worth it. The vitality. I had no idea this was such a competitive... I mean, I know everything is competitive in New York. It's highly competitive. I mean, name your random banal task, and it is extreme competition. I find this slightly alarming, Charlotte, because you clearly thrive in this environment, and yet you present as a pretty relaxed person. So what, what is going on here? I'm glad that my facade has fooled you, John Prito. We'll just keep it as I'm highly successful in every area of life and have that be the presumption. Except the jig is up. You've seen my quiz performance. Well, you'll have another opportunity to demonstrate your quiz acumen in a moment. But before we get there, we're going to talk about America in Asia. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, is about to head off to Thailand and Singapore for a security conference. Our colleague Anton is going to be with him. So watch out for his reporting from there. Joe Biden's just back from South Korea and Japan, where he announced a big new economic plan, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF. And the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has just given a big and long-awaited speech outlining the administration's China policy. Meanwhile, the Chinese foreign minister has just completed his own tour of Pacific nations. Charlotte, where should we start with all of this? So I thought that it was worth looking at this subject now because the Democratic Party has been talking about a pivot to Asia for more than a decade without much result. And so the Biden administration is trying at last to make this happen. So it's a pretty big moment. And the question is whether the Biden administration can pull it off. And to understand that better, I spoke with Scott Kennedy, who's at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Secretary Blinken's speech, long awaited, long overdue, did answer some important questions about what American policy toward China should be. Didn't answer every one of them, and not everyone is going to be satisfied, particularly in Beijing. But it does give us some framework and some metrics for whether they're successful or not. And he summed those up in three words, invest, align, and compete. So invest in America and our economy, our polity, align with our allies to make sure that we're all on the same page as much as possible, and then compete by protecting our technology, only providing market access to China when there's reciprocal access in the other direction, pushing back against Chinese economic coercion, use of subsidies, militarily being prepared. All of that made sense. I think the challenge of the policy is that interacting with China, particularly in a constructive way, was a dangling modifier in this speech and maybe in their policy altogether. That is, the speech is really centered around how to effectively compete against China and view them as a long-term adversary. But we need to interact with them on climate, on public health. We have already a deep commercial relationship, which can't just simply be separated. And there's really no clear articulation of how we're going to balance the competition with China and deal with them in a collaborative way or in a non-confrontational way in these other spaces. So how seriously should we take the idea of decoupling as one progression or devolution, depending on your view, of the way that America relates to China? I think we ought to take the idea of decoupling seriously because it's being talked about a lot in the United States and in China, and there have been some steps towards it. Do I advocate that's what the U.S. ought to do, either full-scale or partial? No. There are reasons why we ought to be connected to China. We also compete more effectively when we're connected in certain kinds of ways for talent, 
by allowing students to go in both directions and workers in both directions. The U.S. is winning the talent competition. And also in high-tech innovation, it's also good for our national defense. If you look at what's happening in Ukraine and China's reaction, China is a conflicted power here. Yes, lots of verbal political support for Putin, engaging in disinformation, but holding the line on providing military and commercial support because they know how sanctions would really hurt their economy. And it hurt their economy because they are interconnected. And I was just in the region, uh, spent five weeks in East Asia and talking to America's allies and friends, those that President Biden is just meeting with. There is not a strong appetite in the region for decoupling. China is a large part of their economies and they also want to put up more defenses, but they're also not planning to walk away from China either. Can you help me understand the Biden administration's prioritization of security, military security in the region versus its economic goals? What constitutes a success and is it achievable? Bottom line, yes, they do have a chance to achieve their goals. I think they're different. On the the national security front, it really is about building a bilateral, multilateral, complex web of relationships to deal with the challenge of China, as well as the continuing challenge of of North Korea, and a whole variety of non-traditional security issues, human security, maritime security, the effect of COVID, climate change. I think one of the big successes of this trip is the development of a maritime awareness system amongst the U.S. and its allies to really know exactly what is going on across the Pacific Ocean into the Indian Ocean. On the econ side, the U.S. already is deeply engaged in the region. We have about a trillion dollars of cumulative investment in the region. Same for East Asian countries in the United States. It supports millions of jobs. But we do need to solidify that relationship to create additional incentives and improve the standards on which we interact with each other. It's I'm unclear if the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is going to be that vehicle. But I think if we set our ambition on the econ side lower to say, let's make sure the U.S. stays in the game. As long as the U.S. doesn't close its door to providing leadership with and collaborating with others in the region on economics, even if we don't achieve a lot, announce a lot of new deals, for the moment, that would be a good minimum goal. So, Charlotte, staying in the game is the sort of minimal definition of America's ambitions in Asia. They are in trade and also in the military sphere, and those two are connected. We're going to talk about both. But before we get there, should we just talk a little bit about the background, how this long-awaited pivot to Asia came about? Yes, I think that Scott's last answer was interesting because it conveys a dramatic lowering of ambition. If you think back to where this idea came from, in 2011, Hillary Clinton, who is then President Obama's Secretary of State, wrote an essay in foreign policy called America's Pacific Century. And it basically argued for the importance of looking to Asia. At this stage, the Iraq war still pretty fresh. There was still a lot of resources that were being expended in in the Middle East, and the Obama administration was trying to get out of there. And the title of that essay strikes me. It was America's Pacific Century with a possessive Americas, right? And so I think there was 
clearly an understanding, and there is an understanding now, that this is probably going to be a Pacific century. But is it America's, or is it a region that evolves with a different power at the helm, in part because it's been so hard to make that pivot? I think one reason it's been so hard to make the pivot, or or one way to think about the difficulty of making that pivot, is that China presents a long-term secular problem that's not currently acute, right? In that sense, it's like climate change. And it's the same reason why setting climate change policy is so difficult, because there is a limited amount of bandwidth in any government, and there will always be acute crises that distract from it, which means that there's a lot of status quo and a lot of sort of muddling through. And so this is why Joe Biden is the third president to be consumed with China's strategy to try to figure out what to do and to find it much rougher going than I think he thought it would be. Can I ask a prior question, maybe a slightly Trumpian question, before we go any further? Why should Asia be such a priority for America? Well, I think there are a few reasons that Asia should be a priority for America, and I think that those reasons have changed a bit over time. At the top of her paper, Clinton said that the Asia-Pacific region has become a key driver of global politics, that it is uh, key to shipping and strategic routes. It boasts nearly half of the world's population. It's an engine of the world's economy. It also is an enormous emitter of greenhouse gases. And then she said that it was home to key allies and, quote, important emerging powers like China, India, and Indonesia. She also said, the fact is that a thriving America is good for China and a thriving China is good for America. We both have much more to gain from cooperation than from conflict. And in the intervening decade, it's become much more clear that America is competing with China and that if you don't have a real strategy for Asia broadly, you're ceding ground to China as a global leader and undermining America's long-term interests. I think that's the fundamental reason, that that America has invested an enormous amount of time and blood and treasure in building up what we've come to call the rules-based international order, and China doesn't like it and wants a different one. It wants a rules-based order in which sovereignty matters most, in which the big countries rule and the small countries do what they must. And I think it's in the world's interests, America's and the world's interests, to fight for what we have built up since the mid-40s. Yeah, I think you're both right about that. There are historical reasons why this should be a priority for America. But I think the most important reason looking forward is, you know, if you ask yourself, do you want to live in a world where China is the rule setter in 30, 40 years? Or would you rather live in a world where America has more sway? I think the answer to that is pretty clear. And in order for America to essentially defend its current status, it needs to be fully engaged in Asia in a way it hasn't always been. Yeah, to that point, John, Lee Kuan Yew, who was the first prime minister of Singapore, used to say that America believed that its foreign policy in Asia could be treated like a video and Washington would press pause and deal with other issues and then hit play whenever it was convenient. He said, quote, if the United States wants to substantially affect the strategic evolution of Asia, it cannot come and go. Yeah, I covered Southeast Asia for a little over three years for The Economist. I was based in Singapore, but I traveled all over the 10-country ASEAN region, which is the sort of core of Southeast Asia, and then beyond to, you know, Australia, China, Papua New Guinea. That Lee Kuan Yew line, I mean, that was always China's statement of fact, but it was also a threat, right? We're big. We're here. We're not going anywhere. America's across an ocean, and its attention can be diverted anytime. So you'd better deal with us first and take our interests seriously. I was in the region from 2014 to 2017, and at the beginning of my time there, that threat from China, we're here, we're not going anywhere, America's an ocean away, and its attention can be diverted anytime. 
that sounded a bit hollow. After four years of Donald Trump, that's not hollow. So as Scott Kennedy pointed out in that interview, there's no real appetite for decoupling because they don't know that America will be there for them if they do decouple. And this is an uncertain time in American domestic politics. The way that we were going to contain China effectively was through trade. Well, there's not much appetite for being a free trader anymore. And with that not there, it's not clear what replaces it. Yes, well, we will get back to that in a moment. But before that, we're going to look at how America has sought over a century and more to push its physical frontier across the Pacific and closer to Asia itself. First, though, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, lots of you do. Thank you for that. Charlotte, John, what have you particularly enjoyed from our coverage over the past week? I continue to learn so much from our colleague Shashank Joshi, who covers defense. And he has a huge piece that he wrote this week on the evolution of the nuclear threat. And it's highly worth reading. Yeah, we'll be talking with Shashank about the nuclear taboo on our daily news podcast, The Intelligence, at some point next week. So please listen to it. But otherwise, in this week's magazine, the special report this week by Gotti Epstein, who's an old China hand, and John McDermott, who's our Africa correspondent about China in Africa, was thorough and terrific and extremely well reported. And by the way, it's a great example of the way in which America taking a backseat leaves a gap for China to move forward with very strategic investment economically and militarily. It certainly is. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Sixty-seven miles long, 18 miles across at the widest point. In area, about half the size of Rhode Island. Native population, about 600,000 persons. A small, rocky, typhoon-swept island. That is Okinawa. The tropical island of Okinawa in the Ryukyu chain is used to being caught between great powers. For much of its history, the islands were an independent kingdom, balanced between Japan and China. And for 70 years, Okinawa has been the fulcrum of America's military presence in Asia. The situation changed. The Chinese mainland had fallen to the communists. In 1950, South Korea was invaded. Okinawa became vitally important. Equipment was rushed in. New facilities had to be built, new runways, new roads and new buildings. We had to make Okinawa strong. America's rivals in the Pacific have changed since Jefferson first looked west. First, the European empires, then Japan, the Soviets, and now China. But one crucial problem has stayed the same. The Asia-Pacific region is just so very big. Beyond the west coast of continental United States, there is an area that encompasses some 85 million square miles. It reaches from the Aleutian Islands in the north to the region of the South Pole. In a book tracing two centuries of grand strategy in the region, by more than providence, the political scientist Michael J. Green writes that America's solution to defending its Asian interests has been to push its western frontier out across the Pacific Ocean. The question has been where exactly that forward line should be drawn. It can be seen that those 85 million square miles cover about 40% of the Earth's surface and includes two-thirds of the world's population. This is the area of the Pacific Command. In 1898, America defeated Spain in the Spanish-American War and annexed Hawaii, the Philippines and Guam. But 
But moving the forward line so far from home also exposed American forces. Within the time span of our easy memory, the concept of conquest has spread across the Pacific. The devastating island-hopping campaign against Japan in the Second World War convinced America it needed force of numbers in the Pacific. It has been neutralized at the cost of immeasurable national and individual sacrifice. It is only reasonable and logical that similar concepts should not be allowed to threaten Pacific security. For the diplomat George Kennan, the architect of the original containment strategy against the Soviet Union, Okinawa would be made the center of our offensive striking power in the Western Pacific area. As part of the peace treaty with Japan, Okinawa became a de facto colony of the United States. Cars drove on the right, Okinawans used dollars and needed passports to visit mainland Japan. It will mean a better standard of living for the Okinawa of tomorrow and goodwill towards their American friends today. The idea was that the American presence on its Asian bases would also stimulate local economies and help win the battle for hearts and minds. The reality hasn't been so simple. President Eisenhower flew into Okinawa over the weekend for a hectic two-hour visit. Even Dwight Eisenhower, the first president to visit Asia, would have heard the refrain, Yankee, go home. Also, there were 5,000 Marines for protection against some 2,000 pro-communist agitators who did manage to stage a few demonstrations but were kept under control. The pressure grew until, under sustained protest, Okinawa reverted to Japanese control in 1972. But despite American eagerness to pull back from direct entanglements in Asia after Vietnam, the military bases on Okinawa have stayed. For in this area of the world where totalitarian aggression is a constant threat, islands of freedom, like Okinawa, must be kept in May this year, it was 50 years since Okinawa returned to Japan. But more than 25,000 American troops are still there. Just across the water lie the Senkaku Islands, owned by Japan but claimed with increasing ferocity by China. As China's military ambition in the region grows, America is still trying to answer the question of where to draw its forward line. The sea has been kept free. But all lands are not free. And in a world where time and distance have lost their meaning, the mutual defense arrangements with our free world allies in the Asian areas are essential. John, there's a lot going on at the moment. The Biden administration is in diplomatic overdrive. I mean, you have Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, who's about to head out to Asia. You have the Blinken speech. You have Joe Biden's recent remarks about defending Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack on the island. I think what all these things have in common is both America and America's allies are trying to define the nature of America's military commitment in Asia which has always been quite ambiguous. It has, and Biden made a lot of news during his press conference with Prime Minister Kishida in Japan. He was asked if he was willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan, and he said, yes, that's the commitment we made. And that, I think, got people anxious because it was seen as a break from America's policy of strategic ambiguity, where it did not say that it would defend Taiwan. It never said that it wouldn't. I'm not sure it's as big a deal as it seemed, and I'm not sure it's all that bad. I think America's policy of strategic ambiguity 
may have been de facto replaced deliberately or not with strategic incoherence, where you had the president saying one thing and his aides saying another. And I'm not sure that's altogether a bad thing. I think more broadly, I suspect that China has been deterred from taking action against Taiwan after it's seen the world's reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I'm not sure that Biden's comment was all that important or said anything new. I suspect that China also probably has assumed that America would be involved militarily to some extent. Yeah. Hal Brands of the American Enterprise Institute said once is a gaffe, three times is a policy, because this is not the first time that Biden has said that America would intervene. It's been three times since August. So I think there's ample debate here. I don't think it's a settled matter at all. John, I just wanted to pick up on what you said about Ukraine as well. I mean, there is an argument that America's current focus and support for Ukraine is somehow a distraction from the bigger things that are going on in Asia. I actually think that might be wrong in this case, in the sense that I think that if you're an American ally in Asia, seeing the commitment that America has made in Ukraine, it's pretty impressive. And I think if you're an American ally in Asia, you'd be feeling considerably more reassured uh, than you might have been otherwise. So I think actually far from being a distraction, America's policy in Ukraine is sort of strengthening its alliances elsewhere in the world. I don't know. I, if I were sitting in Taiwan, I'd be feeling pretty squeamish. And the polling from Taiwan reflects this rising anxiety about whether there would be countries that come to Taiwan's aid should China try to invade. I mean, a key point, right, is that there needs to be a clear plan for how America would respond. If It, it could move really quickly. I think Everyone was surprised by the degree to which Russia's army faltered in its attempts to take over Kiev, for instance. It's not necessarily clear to me that because Russia faltered in its military exploits that China's military would. So I don't know. I I think there's reason to be uneasy. I'm not saying that they would. I am saying that I would imagine they're reassessing the costs right now based on what they've seen of how a determined smaller army with adequate technology and intelligence sharing can hold off a larger one. I think that on some elements, we may have to agree to disagree. But I think on one element, we we do agree, which is that the Biden administration, clearly compared with the Trump administration, has shown itself to be willing and interested in working with allies in a coherent way. And I think that that probably does give comfort to Uh, smaller countries who may feel bullied. So if you think about what Trump was doing in Asia, Trump was going around saying that Kim Jong-un is a friend, and he was demanding that Japan multiply its spending to support military bases, otherwise America might leave. And that's clearly not the approach of the Biden administration. In, In March, Japan passed a new budget for its support for American military bases within the country. America wants to be in Japan and in South Korea, and and those countries want America to be there too. And I think it's notable that America looks like a more stable partner in an era which China continues to, to make its aggressive agenda pretty clear. There was this deal that China advanced in April. It signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands, which suggested that China may want to build a naval base in the Pacific there. That's something that was very worrisome to nearby countries, Australia and New Zealand, most notably, but also countries throughout the region. And so there's increasing interest militarily in having strong alliances within the region and with America. John, the Quad, this group of Japan, Australia, India and the US, has been hailed by some as a kind of Asian NATO. It's not really. But I think it's helpful to discuss the differences between what the Quad is and what a real military and security alliance is. 
Well, I think it's a much looser grouping for a number of reasons. First of all, historical, right? NATO was formed in the wake of the Second World War with Russia militarily threatening Europe, having advanced into Eastern Europe and threatening Europe. That expansionist threat isn't really there with China. I think China's principal goal is not to conquer territory. It's to be left alone to grow and not be criticized. And I think that requires a different, much softer, perhaps, approach. I think it also indicates the, the, the relative weakness of a lot of Asian countries militarily. So it's a different response for a much different sort of security environment. I think also, I mean, NATO has 30 allies. It's kind of a wall of solidarity. In Asia, what America has pursued is something way more diffuse. So the metaphor that people use most often is this hub and spokes model where it has individual agreements with specific countries. But those countries aren't obliged to intervene on each other's behalf. With AUKUS, you have America, Australia, and Britain working together to develop nuclear-powered submarines for Australia. It's being extended to other areas of defense. The Quad, this loose alliance of America, India, Australia, and Japan, there are a number of different areas in which those four countries are working together both economically and, and potentially militarily. It's a different and more diffuse type of work than you might think of when you think about the way that America has responded to the war in Ukraine. Yes, and the same goes in some ways for the economic dimension of America's renewed focus on Asia. We'll be back to talk about that in just a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Biden administration announced its Indo-Pacific economic framework to great fanfare, but it's quite hard to know what sort of creature it is, isn't it, Charlotte? And perhaps even harder to say how much impact it'll have either in strengthening America's position in Asia or in limiting China's reach in the region. So there are a few people who will geek out with me as willingly as Simon Rubinovich on this topic. Simon is our colleague who covers economics based from Washington, but very importantly, for my purposes, he also was covering economics from China for the past several years. And so he has a really interesting perspective on this. And I wanted to call him up and ask him about it. Well, I think so far there's limited evidence of decoupling in a pure economic sense. I mean, if you look at the continuing amount of American businesses that are in China that are using it, both as a manufacturing center, but also obviously trying to sell into the market there's been no great decrease and certainly no great decoupling over the last few years. Trend-wise, though, you can begin to point to some shifts. Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand are all playing increasingly important roles in manufacturing around Asia. If you look at Vietnam's exports to America, they've absolutely boomed over the last few years, whereas China's have not done nearly as well. So you can begin to see some evidence of American supply chains moving out of China. You know, even big companies like Apple are talking about using other 
parts of the region for manufacturing. So incrementally, you might say that there's some success there. And I think beyond whatever America has done in terms of its trade policies, China's zero COVID has clearly caused a really substantial rethink, not just for American businesses, but for foreign businesses in general, about the reliability of China as a manufacturing hub. So what is the goal of IPEF? And does it have actual tools that are practical to help achieve that goal? It's ambitious, but also remarkably vague. So, I mean, just to give you some sense of the dimensions of it, it's very big. If you look at the 13 countries that are the initial partners, they represent about 40% of global GDP. It includes India, Japan, most importantly, China is not a part of it. So clearly that's one big element of the goal of IPEF. But at the same time, it's incredibly vague. It's not a traditional trade deal. It's not going to involve cutting American tariffs, which means that America is not going to be able to offer market access to the other partners, which then limits what the other partners might be willing to do in terms of things like labor rights or environmental standards. It's not going to be voted on by Congress, which both then limits the enforceability of whatever commitments are agreed to and makes it very, very easy for a future administration to walk away from it. Beyond trade, it touches on a lot of other things. There's a focus on infrastructure building, on clean energy, anti-corruption, tax reform, strengthening global supply chains. It's so wide-ranging and so expansive that I think it is fair to question whether it'll ultimately amount to something much beyond being a talking shop. And so I think that there is a real risk that because it is relatively ill-defined, it ends up being ultimately a bit of a nothing burger. What does that mean for this relationship that America is trying to cultivate with partners in the region? Do you think it will just be basically frozen? Do you anticipate any kind of progress? And do you see China's economic program continuing to advance if America is stalled? I guess the good thing about eating a nothing burger is that at least America is at the table in Asia and eating something. And that's one of the dominant reactions of different Asian diplomats that I've spoken with in Washington in the past couple of weeks. The withdrawal of America from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, the, the deal that was initially conceived of by Barack Obama and then ditched by Trump, that was a bruising and scarring exit for the region. There's been this period of waiting, you know, nearly a year and a half for the Biden administration to come forth with something resembling an economic strategy. They finally have done that. And there's this possibility that, you know, maybe in the course of discussions, negotiations, maybe the Biden administration does begin to grow a backbone and decide that they do want to actually turn this into a proper trade deal that will actually have to be submitted to Congress for a vote. I mean, China has reacted angrily to the IPEF in the same way that initially it reacted angrily to the TPP because it knows that you can analyze all the details till the cows come home. But ultimately, the big picture is that you see America still trying to throw its weight around the region. And you can see, I think, more concerningly for China that many countries in the region welcome that. They don't necessarily want to choose between China and America. But I think the concern in recent years was that America was basically out of the running. And so the only choice was China. So at least now you see America trying to present something like a credible alternative to a purely China-dominated order in the region.
Charlotte, I want to put an optimistic case to you here, and you can tell me if I'm being naive. Administrations always have policies on trade, industrial policies as well to some extent. But what really determines where stuff gets built tends to be the interests of American companies. And here, if you look at big manufacturers like Apple, they're putting a lot of pressure on their suppliers to find manufacturing capacity outside China. And that's not really for political reasons. It's largely because COVID has hit their supply chains. But it seems to me, at least, that there's a real opening here for America's trade policy in Asia and America's diplomacy in Asia, because the sort of interests and the direction of travel of big American companies and what the administration wants to happen seem to be in line in a way that quite often is not the case. That's a really interesting way to put it. I think that to some extent, you are largely right. There are a few different forces that have inspired companies to think differently about their supply chains. However, without a traditional trade agenda, it is more complicated for companies to make long-term investment decisions. So it's kind of easy to move human capital around, to move staffing around. Factories are, are, are hard to relocate. It takes a long time. These can be capital decisions that play out over a number of years. And even if you're in the midst of reconfiguring a supply chain, there are new risks that can come up. You see this playing out really dramatically in the area of solar panels, which I wrote about in a column last week, where you have uh, companies that adapted to tariffs, anti-dumping tariffs that were placed on China by sourcing solar panels out of Southeast Asian countries. There is uh, an effort by a very small American company saying that the manufacturers of solar panels in a few Southeast Asian countries, including Vietnam, are skirting those anti-dumping tariffs. And essentially, the entire solar industry is now paused, is frozen, as this dispute plays out. There are more than 300 solar projects in the U.S. that are now on hold. And so that's just one little anecdote of the way in which this new type of tension can lead to complete chaos for different American companies. It clearly is the case that if the Biden administration had a more traditional trade agenda, if it had joined the TPP, it would have been better for American companies. You see this playing out, for instance, in the fight over IP protections for pharma, which evolved in a way that American pharma is not happy about. What you're seeing now with IPEF is something way less certain. It's a deal in which the terms are still being made up as the Biden administration goes along. Countries know this. Companies know this. And that just does create a more complex environment to be making these long-term investment decisions by the private sector. I mean, it seems to me that the staying at the table strategy, which Scott described at the beginning, sounds pretty pathetic. But actually, in reality, it's about the best that the administration can do. And given the context the Biden administration is operating in, it seems pretty successful to me. So as you say, on trade, Charlotte, the best thing would be if America could join TPP, get a free trade deal through Congress, but it can't. So given that, can America engage more economically with countries other than China in Asia? And then on the military front, America as Donald Trump's election, I think, showed, is exhausted and reluctant to play this role as global policeman. Nevertheless, America has all these allies in Asia. And I think here again, the Biden administration has done pretty well. You know, the Quad seems to me to be a useful gathering. So I think it's a question of 
not what would the ideal policy be here, but what is an available policy given all the other constraints? And I think when you frame it like that, what the administration is doing makes some sense to me at least. I think that's probably right, but I guess I would be a little harder on the administration in saying that the priority is right, the execution is wrong. This is really, really late. I mean, it just is late. And Blinken's speech should have come earlier. The administration has been distracted by other things, but you do have to do more than one thing at once. And it's not like it's a surprise that China is a huge strategic rival. And the the, the economic relationship with China continues to deteriorate. I mean, in key industries, you see this playing out with semiconductors. You have restrictions in the export of semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Uh, You have nearly 300 Chinese companies that may be delisted from American exchanges because they don't meet American rules for audits. There are a variety of things happening in the private sector that point to a continuous decline in the economic relationship with China. And the question is, what happens next? Yeah, I'm going to duck under the parapet a bit, I suppose, and not take a position on whether it's it's right or wrong, but just point to the... <laughs> I like the idea of there being a parapet with John and I. Is this the most stridently we've ever disagreed, John Prudeau? I'm not sure we're even disagreeing, so probably yes. <laughs> I'm not going to agree or disagree with either of you to take a truly bold position, but I think the lateness of the administration's actions and, if you want to be generous, the flexibility of its proposals just show the extent to which we're in a sort of liminal moment, ideologically, politically. There is no political support for free trade, but there are a lot of merits-based arguments for it and a lot of people within the administration who back it. I think that it's not entirely clear what the military response to China should be other than preparedness. And so in that sense, you want to draw in as many of the major Pacific powers as possible but you don't want to overcommit to anything. And I think in a moment like this, grand strategy is probably overrated and the virtues of just being at the table and muddling through are underrated. Now, I think that's not a long-term strategy, obviously, but I think in this moment, there's a lot to say for that sort of approach. Speaking of muddling through, it's quiz time. One of the oldest, most pivotal, and most tumultuous regional relationships has been with the Philippines. The islands became a U.S. colony in 1898 after victory in the Spanish-American War. There had been some debate in the United States about whether to annex the islands or not, which The Economist wrote about. It is not for us to urge any line of policy, for nothing could be more gratuitous, we noted. But we hoped that if America did take over the Philippines, it would do so, quote, purely in the interests of humanity and the higher civilization. Question one. Which president was installed as the first civilian governor of the Philippines in 1901? This is a question for you, John Fasman. It's a good question. My son just started playing Risk, which... I realize it's just really bad character training. It's the worst game. It's the single worst game. It's the mayonnaise of board games. He he woke up this morning, he came in at 6.15, and he told me that he had just taken over a continent. Uh, That is troubling behavior in a preschooler. I don't know. William McKinley? It's It's a wild guess. Charlotte, do you want to have a go? No, I give up preemptively. It was William Taft. He liked the Philippines so much that he declined President Roosevelt's offer of a seat on the Supreme Court twice so that he could stay on in the islands. Having been to the Philippines several times, that seems like the right decision to me. (laughs) Question two. Which American state was once known as New Philippines? 
Oh, wow. Hawaii? Yeah, Hawaii sounds right. I don't know what else. It certainly wouldn't be North Dakota. <laughs> it was not North Dakota or Hawaii, actually. It was Texas. This was from 1716 when Nuevas Filipinas was part of the Spanish Empire in what would become North America, of course. The name fell out of use by the end of the 18th century and the territory ceased to exist with the fall of New Spain in 1821. Hmm. So Nuevas Filipinas. Fascinating. Yeah, I would never have guessed that. I've learned so much. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that I always learn so much from you on the podcast, but I thought that would be altogether too much like public flattery of a kind that is verboten at The Economist. So I'm just going to say thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan, Saul Rivers and Harriet Noble, with research by Elizabeth Pete. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have an American politics newsletter, which is also not coincidentally called Checks and Balance. It's such a great name. That often goes behind the scenes on the reporting that fills our pages. You can sign up for that. Economist.com forward slash newsletters is the link you want. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.